Supposedly, we just wrapped up the war in Afghanistan after 19 years and 10 months. Beats Vietnam War by five months as the longest war that America has ever participated in. Take that as you will. Modern war novels and films are often told by those from the outside looking in. Journalism has always been an outsider's art form. That is, until Hunter S. Thompson changed that idea with his expose on the Hell's Angels. Filmmakers like Oliver Stone, Samuel Fuller, and Michael Moore have made films that come straight from the horse's mouth. Platoon, The Big Red One, Roger and Me. Novelist Tim O'Brien wrote the textbook masterpiece of a Vietnam veteran's memoirs called The Things They Carried. Today, we welcome one such veteran who has churned his near-lifetime occupation of being in the military, from childhood to his own deployment, into a proper modern masterpiece of a docudrama memoir called Volunteers, Growing Up in the Forever War. We are happy to have author, veteran, and anti-war film junkie, who ain't, Jared W. Alexander, on this episode of Five Dollar Buzz. Step inside, lock the door behind you, make sure the towel's properly positioned. You're stepping in on another episode of $5 Buzz. Uh, once again, uh, this is George Kursar here out in uh, coastal Connecticut uh, on a rainy autumn night, getting ready for Thanksgiving. Um, we've got a lighter crew tonight, but that's okay because we have uh, world-class guests, so that's going to make up for our lack of uh, hosting. But Pete Liska he- is here. Uh, Pete, what's going on out in Los Angeles? Hello, George. Um, good, man. It's uh, unseasonably warm over the 80s and still in the evening. We would normally have a fire going, but this evening we do not. It's very, very nice here in Los Angeles. Awesome, man. Well, um, tonight we have an exceptional guest. Uh, he's an author. He's a military veteran. Uh, his name is Jared Alexander, and he has just written uh, a book that came out just a few days ago called Volunteers Growing Up in the Forever War. Jared, how are you tonight? Good, good, man. Thanks for having me here. Yeah, I appreciate your time. And unless I'm mistaken, are you in Atlanta, Georgia right now? No, I live in Brooklyn. Oh, you're in Brooklyn. Just down the road okay. from me. Okay. What part of Brooklyn are you in? Clinton Hill. Okay. Just, uh, kind of up from uh, Prospect Park, about a, about a half mile, maybe, maybe a mile. Okay. I grew up, uh, I didn't grow up. I spent a lot of time uh, right around 9-11 in Fort Greene, Brooklyn. I think that's not mm-hmm. too far from the right down the street. Yeah. yeah. Right down the road. Awesome. Well, um, we appreciate your time. And um, I know that, you know, part of the genesis of the book uh, growing up in the forever war is that you grew up on uh, various military bases. Is that correct? And what parts of could you share with us just where exactly those bases were and how that kind of shaped your background and kind of your worldview if it did at all yeah sure so i started out and um you know i was weird i was born in wisconsin uh but i don't have any real connection to the place my mother just kind of had a i think a, a family friend who was a doctor and they just my mother and father just sort of took me up that way and then had me and then took me back to Oklahoma where my dad was stationed at the time, a place called Altus Air Force Base. We didn't stay very, there very long, maybe months at, at best. And then we ended up in um, the Air Force that sent my dad and my mom to a place called Hill Air Force Base, Utah. It was, uh, it's uh, 
about a half an hour north of um, Salt Lake City, kind of just south of Ogden, uh, right up against the mount, the Wasatch Mountain Range. And I lived there uh, with the, with a brief interlude. Uh, I guess when I was about three or four, I lived there from like then till I was about twelve. And then for about about ten months, I lived with my dad in uh, Castle Air Force Base, in uh, which is up near Merced, California. Um, and then, uh, you know, after at about age 12, I picked up and then moved to um, Japan. I went to oh. my stepdad. It, it was in was a used to repair the heads up displays on um, F-16 Fighting Falcon jets. And then he changed into the went into the intelligence field after the Persian Gulf War. And um, we ended up in this little base way up in the northern part of Honshu called Misawa. And um, we spent three years there. And then I went to live with my dad after that uh, in outside Los Angeles, uh, Palmdale way out there in the Antelope Valley. And, uh, you know, and then from there, my, my mother and stepfather had moved uh, to f- outside Fort Gordon, Georgia. And uh, my stepdad was from Georgia at the time as well, or he's from, he's from Georgia now. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so I ended up living with them until my last two years of, of high school. And then I went to the Marines from there. Now, as far as like its influence, yeah, I mean, I mean, I, I, you know, I write in the book, one of my earlier memories is, you know, waking up to the sound of fighter jets taking off. I mean, uh, we had this, the, the, at the time, the military, the Hill Air Force Base had this strange neighborhood on the, on the eastern edge of the air base, right up against the mountain range. And it was on the, if you, you, you it was this little tightly packed little set of old World War II era houses. They've, they've torn them all down since then. You can, if you look at Google Maps, you can see kind of the pad of ground where it was. And one of the things about it was it sat right up against the airfield. I mean, you, I could look, go out my back door to the house, walk maybe 150 yards across the street into a playground. And then there was a chain link fence, another road, another chain link fence. And then there was the flight line. So, you know, I could look out my bedroom window, which overlooked all that ground, and I could just watch them just blast, you know, at 6, 6.30 in the morning, watch a flight take off. And, you know, my hearing was messed up <laughs> from, the, from, from all that racket, even now. And, um, you know, that had a big influence on me. You know, you, you were just kind of surrounded by it. You, you know, you heard the fighter jets it's sort of in the background, nonstop. You know, and then when the Persian Gulf War starts in 1990, I... Um, you know, my stepdad was one of the first people, he was one of the first wing that was sent overseas to defend Saudi Arabia after, after the invasion of Kuwait in, 19, in August. And uh, he spent eight months over there. And so we were kind of just glued to the television and watching. It's called around. Desert Shield first, right? Operation That's Desert right. Shield, right. Yeah, okay. yeah, the, the, yeah, the defense of Kuwait was a uh, defense of Saudi Arabia was Desert Shield. Yeah, so I just kind of grew up watching that and it just had a huge impact on me, along with like the movies that we all probably know, you know, the Iron Eagles, the Top Guns, you know, like Platoon, uh, Hamburger Hill, you know, all that stuff, sort of Predator. I mean, I, I have kind of a rule in my house that if Predator's on, if I catch Predator on cable, I just watch it, you know, like it's one of my favorite films of that period. There's an um, actor that you might, you might know, Pete, you might know the answer to this. There's an actor that's been killed by an alien a predator and uh there was one, i forgot who i'm forgetting one other but uh it was bill paxton he was killed by all of those like sci-fi uh military uh i i, I wish i knew who the other one was but uh not to predator. make light of it that has um, the terminator killed him yeah and that an was alien it. got him yeah 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 that's right yeah predator yeah. i don't know if a predator go- oh yes they did in a predator too that's right yeah, yeah. He so, plays a little hotshot detective. Right. 
Bill Paxton. Yeah. But um, I know, sorry to make light of that, but I know uh, from what I've heard that you reference these films a lot. And, you know, Pete and I could, uh, you know, certainly agree being from the Generation X uh, perspective that our whole perception of what a military conflict was, was primarily those movies about Vietnam. And I've heard you specifically mention the character played by Charlie Sheen in Platoon. Um, you know, was there something specific about his character? I mean, he, um, you know, it, did, it didn't seem like uh, that character that he played had, when he arrived in Vietnam, had a specific mindset. You know, it didn't seem like he was, I don't want to say he was ambivalent, but it just seemed like he was absorbing what was going on versus he didn't have any preconceived notions. Is that, would you agree with that? Yeah, I think so. I think Chris Taylor came in there somewhat, you know, he was naive, which I can definitely recognize in myself at the time when I was 18 and showing up, you know, showing up in the Marine Corps. I was very much very naive. Um, but, you know, Chris Taylor is an intellectual observer to the whole process and everything he's seeing, you know, and that's what makes him. That's why I liked him a lot is he he was somebody who was kind of part of it and could blend into that world. I mean, like his conversations with uh, uh, I think it's David Keith or Keith David. I always get those two mixed up. The, the, the order of them, the, uh, his buddy at the end there who gets choppered out, you know, like the conversations they have and they're two, they're, they're from two very different, you know, socioeconomic classes. And obviously they have a racial divide there too, but they, he, they can navigate around each other really well. And I always respected that. And, but the character in general terms, like he's, he's got a moment, he has moments of heroism and he also has moments of cowardice. And I think that there's a lot a lot of it's a very honest portrayal and i i knew that even as a teenager when i went back and rewatched it when i was really fascinated with vietnam my friends a lot of my veteran friends we quote that movie quite a bit um and, you know my, i have a buddy with the who was in the 11th acr two friends with 11th acr one with ted mountain and we reference that film a lot it's really important to us um the dysfunction of an infantry platoon is really universal i mean I, it applies to my experience in the marine corps later you know i saw a lot of the similar uh, similar um character types you know even even you know 20 30 40 years later and so i think that's a lot of it why chris taylor was really important i mean he was an intellectual observer to it and he and just that film in general terms was probably like it was like an it was an honest portrayal it felt like yeah and it felt like he there was a conflict between I guess the two father figures would be like uh, Willem Dafoe and um, is it Tom Berenger, right? Mm -hmm. Who played the yeah. uh, the other um, commit? Uh, com you would know better than me that his specific mm -hmm. uh, role, but he knew that you know that scene where um, Willem Dafoe is you know shot down in the field, and he has that exchange with Berenger, um, and. You know, Berenger is supposed to be this very hard and um, cynical guy or, I, you know, I guess that's the way you would describe him. But he you knew that um, that Charlie Sheen had the upper hand in that situation. And where was what you know that where was that fact going to uh, play out in the rest of the film, I guess. Right. Right. You know, it's a you know, Barnes in that in that movie is. You know, he's, he's really kind of a fast, he's obviously the embodiment of the, the, the evil that can sort of take over an individual in that, in that space. Because, you know, I mean, I, I, can, I can see a Barnes that's a nicer person, you know, that that person existed before that moment. And 
he was just sort of twisted and warped by that war and what he had seen in it and his ideas of what what how the how it should work and he was also incredibly arrogant you know he believed that it was his way or the highway as, as the saying goes you know you know and, and but he also i think he knew that but didn't know how to navigate it either i think he saw chris knew that and i think that you know that was you know that's why i think at the you know not to spoil the film for anybody who hasn't seen it but um you know that's why at the end you know he's comfortable with chris killing it you know i mean he says you know after he realizes what chris is going to do he's go on do it you know and uh in fact there's a there's a, a, a an alternate ending to that where he doesn't do it where he walks away and and Beringer's character starts yelling at him to come back and do it calls him a gutless shit Wow. And uh, and uh, it would have been a terrible way to end that film, I think. But it's an interesting look at because it, it gives you a little bit of an extra, an extra dose of little little some some crumbs on that character that maybe didn't you wouldn't have had otherwise. Uh, but yeah, I think it's such a rad movie. I mean, like you know, Elias. I I knew guys like Elias, you know, and and sometimes they had a their their idealism got in the way of of kind of navigating the bureaucracy in a certain respect. Whereas that's what like oh whereas you got o'neill who is the uh who's um john c mcginley who is nothing right. but bureaucracy and he ends up running the show at the end you know like he, he he's in charge of second platoon as captain die tells him you know like you know and, and that 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 it was like it was the perfect way to end that it was like if anybody's going to survive it's going to be him because that's who ends up getting you know it's just it was so it was poetic justice for that character yeah, I mean, it, it speaks to the it speaks to the camaraderie that is developed amongst people in a dysfunctional situation, which mm -hmm. I can see how that would be, you know, that you and your your military friends back reference. It means that they kept they did a good job of capturing that maybe people aren't the same. Maybe they don't even like each other, but they will come together to, to when they're under a dysfunctional uh, system, so to right. speak. You know, which is which is a fascinating aspect of the movie. I hear that actually from my brother, who's army, and and his old buddies. You know, hearing them tell stories, it's a lot of the same thing too. Yeah, it's it's kind of sad we don't see we haven't seen that a lot in the modern cinema. The war it doesn't seem to translate well. I think, you know, I, I it's kind of a shame in a sense. I keep waiting for that sort of, you know, uh, catharsis in in art that sort of demonstrates that in a popular culture way. I think Hurt Locker kind of gets that right with the dysfunction between the characters with the with uh, Jeremy uh, Renner's character and, and, and uh, the rest of them. And, and they've all, all three of them have gone on to do great work since, but um, yeah, it does get a little bit of that, that sort of dysfunction that can occur. That one though felt a little bit like it was a film plot conflict, whereas, well, they're all plot conflicts for films, but you know, they're, they're, that one felt a little forced at times, but it, it tried to, and I appreciate, appreciated what Catherine, ba you know, I think it was Catherine Baylor, right? I think what she was trying to do there. Do you have any, uh, have you seen Generation Kill or have you read the book Generation Kill? I thought that was very- Hands good. down the best one they've done yet. Right. Thank you for reminding me of that. I, I'm, yeah. I'm embarrassed I forgot it because I think that that is the, like as far as understanding Marine Corps culture and like understanding like modern modern war culture, it's, it's, it is underappreciated. Like that's, for me, that's like the Band of Brothers of the Iraq War. I mean, it, it is absolutely fantastic. Yeah, that's a really good pull. The one actor, uh, his name is escaping me. P Pete, you'd know him. He was in The Wire. He played this character called Ziggy in The mm -hmm. Wire. And uh, he was just always drinking rip fuel in Generation Kill. And that, that one line, he goes, uh, he's like, these kids think I'm a hero. He's like, fuck that. I'm a death-dealing killer. 
It was just like a great line. <laughs> you know, it kind of reminded me of like something that you would hear in like uh, the Oliver Stone movies. And um, also, um, I know we don't want, we could spend hours talking about these movies because we all love them. Um, in uh, Full Metal Jacket, the character that I always, you know, gravitated to was one played by Matthew Modine, Private Joker, because mm-hmm. there's two parts in the movie that he really kind of sticks out in a way that no one really knows what to do with him when um, he's graduating, I believe is the right way to say, uh, boot camp and uh, the sergeant's like, um, Joker, you're going into journalism. He's like, what the fuck do you, who the fuck do you think you are? (laughs) Mickey Spillane? And that was like the only time like the sergeant really didn't have, he like lost himself for just like a brief second. And then the other point is in the film when Joker is out in the field and another, uh, you know, higher ranking officer comes over to him and says, why do you have this peace symbol on your shoulder? And what does it say on your helmet? And he goes, sir, born to kill, sir. And he's, he's like, well, he's like, what the fuck are you doing out here? And he's like, I, I think it's about the duality of man. And that's something that I've always thought like, in many situations, the duality of man. And I wonder if you think that resonated with, you know, your writing or your experiences. Cause I think I've heard you say that you were, you went into the military voluntarily with certain expectations, but also you would describe yourself as, you know, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but maybe anti-war. And there's a way that you can embody both, um, aspects and is the duality of men is that is that kind of uh resonating with you at all oh, absolutely yeah i think it's i think that was the thing that i that was the, the 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 needle i was trying to run a thread through when i was writing uh volunteers is like it's not it's not i think it's dishonest to be you know absolute right i can't absolutely say that i'm anti-war and i can't absolutely say that i'm some kind of pro-war junkie right but i think that both elements lived in me you know like and maybe certain to a certain extent still do i just have to be a little wiser about both of them um and so i, I couldn't just dismiss one like jokers you know gustav hadford does a good job with that as you know he's he's got that peace symbol and he's also got born to kill on his helmet and those two things are in contradiction to each other and joker knows this you know, and, and he's, he's, he's seeing that take place around him. And I, you know, I don't, I don't want to make a direct comparison to myself in that character necessarily, though we, we are somewhat similar in terms of our occupations, but um, I, I did too. I, I, I spotted those things. I would, I would have conversations with people who were, you know, incredible marksmen or great squad leaders. I, the, the, the character Cask, for instance, in, in the book, he's, you know, a fantastic infantry squad leader, probably the best I've ever seen in eight years. But he said to me very plainly, he's like, the very beginning of the operation we were running, he goes, quite frankly, if we don't get shot at this whole time, I'm going to be just fine with that. I'll walk through these houses for a week and be bored to tears and come out the other end of it and be just fine. But then a few week, a few days later, one night we're sitting on a roof and we're watching uh, a lightly armored vehicle, which is this kind of like eight-wheeled you know, all terrain kind of armor carrier with a, and it's got a 25 millimeter gun on it, but it's 25 millimeter. And it's putting these, you know, massive rounds into this building at, at night. We're watching tracers fly. And we, we just had this like, wow, look at this. This is wild. You know, like it's, you know, we were sort of reveling in the, in the pyrotechnics of it, you know, and we did a lot of that, you know, especially under fire. And 
So there's this contradiction, I think, in humanity that needs to be explored more. And I think that the more we do that, and the better we can do that, the better we can unravel why wars start and end up, start to begin with, you know, why we end up doing it at all. If we just take an, a look and go, look, I'm all anti-war, and I'm just not going to look at the, the uglier ends of humanity, well, those things perpetuate, and they kind of just, they get the freedom to just ride herd on us. If we're just going to a pro-war attitude, well, then we end up becoming the monsters on that end of the table. But I think that the truth about people lives right in the middle somewhere. Right. Um, no, I think that's very well said. And um, I know we want to get into talking about the book, but just a couple of other just background questions. I, I recall uh, reading or hearing you say that it was a major decision uh, for you to forego the Air Force, uh, because I believe uh, your, your father was in the Air Force and you decided ultimately to join the Marines. Was that... Um, was that a big decision for you? Is there a reason why you didn't want to do the Air Force, uh, you know, before enlisting in the Marines ultimately? Well, my, 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 the, the change is, is a bit of a gradient. So like when I was younger and, and I, I, you know, when I was a kid and didn't understand how the world worked, I, you know, I thought a pilot would be an interesting job. Now I can't get on a merry-go-round without getting sick. I get motion sickness really easy. So I learned that as a kid and I, was, I began to realize like, you know, I don't think I'm gonna be flying in planes anytime soon. Never mind the fact that I hate school. Like I, I didn't, I didn't do well at it my first few, you know, first year or year and a half of high school. And I, but by that point I was already looking at the infantry. I, I became really fascinated with like guys in Vietnam, the platoons and the, the films we've been talking about. And so the army was where I was going to land. At least that was my intentions. And then the army, they, 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 they really phoned in their recruiting. You know, I was like, look, I know I had a decent ASVAB score and they wanted me to be like a water purification specialist or a, pick a field off the catalog, you know, something that was, but it was very boring. And, and it wasn't why I was there. I wasn't there to learn a job skill. I wanted the experience, right. you know, I wanted the story to tell effectively. And, but they wouldn't give me infantry. I was like, listen, I want to go to jump school and I want to be assigned to a rifle company in one of the infantry, airborne divisions, you know, or something to that effect. And they, they wanted nothing to do with that. So I was like, okay, well bag it. I'll just go to the Marine Corps. They'll do it. And they did. You know? So that was kind of how I ended up in, uh, going that direction. It was basically completely a matter of interest. And what can you tell the listeners, you know, you uh, make the decision to join the Marines and, you know, what time period is this specifically? And once you get through uh, boot camp, basic training, where in the world are you sent? And, you know, what are those initial, ex it was, um, was the uh, war in Iraq happening, you know, is this post 9-11 or can you take us through like the time period? So I enlisted in the summer of 98. Okay. Uh, got out of high school, like what, June, the first week of June. And by the end of that month, I was at Paris Island, South Carolina. I spent three months there. The end of September, I graduated and then I went to Camp Geiger, which is this little off branch of Camp Lejeune, North Carolina, and did infantry school. And then I was assigned to the 6th Marine Regiment at, in um, Camp Lejeune, so basically just down the street. And I spent my first two years there in a rifle company. Um, and then I went while I was in, well, during those two years, I went overseas uh, with the Marine Expeditionary Unit to the Mediterranean in uh, the Middle East. And then I came back from that. And then I was in, I was eventually sent to a unit in DC to do like chem bio weapon response work it was kind of this odd offshoot unit that was responsible for like you know if uh 
some fool decides to, you know, bomb the capital with Ricin or something, we would go in and evacuate the casualties. We were trained in like SCBA and, and, and a bunch of hazmat gear and lows, you know, crawling around in collapsed structures, that sort of thing. So that sort of thing. And 9-11 happens while I'm there. And uh, right after that, matter of fact, we were you were in D.C. area. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I was just south of just south of D.C. Wow. About about fifteen, about a half hour. Yeah. And actually, what do you know? It's about twenty minute drive. And uh, so, like, we were on alert to go to to go to either the Pentagon or New York City. Wow. To handle response for one of those two, but due to the sort of bureaucratic red tape of the military, we ended up not going to New York. In fact, what was real tragic about that was that summer a large part of our unit had just trained with the FDNY. They had spent like a month okay. in New York working directly with those guys who had just been killed in, in the towers. And yeah. so it was like, there was a lot of, a lot of why is the government like, why are we, why are we, why, why are we still sitting here? Let's go. What are we doing? But the, they didn't have the structures built to, to allow us to go. Uh, there were legal systems and that sort of thing. But right after that, we ended up doing the response to the anthrax attack that occurred in uh, late October. And so we spent, you know, a good two, three weeks in D.C., about a month, I think all told, you know, going through. I, I, I you know, went through the Longworth Hall in hazmat gear and took samples off the carpets in a bunch of senators' offices and that sort of thing. Congress yeah, you must have been right in the thick of that stuff because I was living in New York City at, during 9-11 and the words ricin and, and like those words were just in the headlines every single day, the same way like COVID or, you know, vaccine is today, you know, you right. just swap it out that those were the buzzwords, I guess, for lack of a better term of the day. It was like, I remember riding the subway and they, they had like certain levels of security and there was always stories in the newspaper at that time about, you know, packages being sent with, strange uh, materials in them and they had to be tested mm -hmm. so you must have been right obviously in the right in the thick of all of this yeah you know it was <laughs> my time in, in maryland I was, I was there two years i was like i was there for for 9-11 which is the you know the you know, land the strike in the pentagon anthrax and the dc sniper wow so i'm, I'm sitting there for like probably the <laughs> I mean, I went from, yeah, I went from, you know, nervousness over, over, you know, responding to 9-11 to walking through halls of, you know, Congress people's office filled anthrax to worrying if I'm gonna get shot on the way to the car at the Best Buy, you know, like it was. I mean, like 19, you're about 19 at this point. Right? I was 21 then. 21. Yeah. And, you're, and I wonder, I wonder since you're talking about it, I mean, being around, being military involved in that area. Is there a spillover of all the political bullshit that's going on? I mean, is that part of like the daily conversation with you and your, your folks? Like all the, it's a political, it's a, it's a, obviously it's DC. It's that political town. Do you guys kind of hear like gossip and, and all that stuff? Is that a factor in, in things that happen or do you get, or not, not, not then if you were say in the middle of uh, Colorado or something? Not really, actually. Yeah, that was, I mean, it's, you know, DC is a social club in that respect and, you know, uh, not really. You, you have to be kind of plugged into that directly in order to get that kind of news. But no, I mean, the average private first class or Lance Corporal, when I was a corporal, Lance Corporal Corporal when I was there, we, we were so far removed from it on a day-to-day -day level. I mean, our commanders probably knew a little bit more about one thing or another just by virtue of their proximity. But even then, the chain of command would have insulated them from quite a bit. Uh, so no, I, I, don't, I, didn't, I never felt any, any real 
pull, I guess, you know, to, to, you know, any kind of news or, or just sort of insider details on what's going on there. And it was strange. It's like that point in time was one of the last times that I can remember at least where it seems like all of the politicians, senators, and everyone was aligned. There weren't really too many people um, saying, we don't think that we should go and invade Iraq, even though the circumstances and the, um, you know, what was being told to the public at the time, as history shows, like it really wasn't exactly what they were selling. However, everyone was on board with going and, um, you know, starting reigniting this conflict with uh, a regime led by Saddam Hussein. It's strange that after that, you don't really, (laughs) there's not much people agree on in those uh, Beltway insider positions. Is that Mm -hmm. fair to say? I think so. I think that yeah, nine eleven was sort of a unique case case for that. Because I mean, I mean, Newt, Newt Gingrich predates nine eleven, and and uh, you know his, his the slow erosion of of consensus starts there. I think in a lot of ways, you know, his his time as Speaker of the House really had a hand in. You know, we don't work with the other side anymore. That was what the effective added political strategy was for Republicans in that period, and then nine eleven happens, and it's kind of a. In that case, there was almost a McCarthyism at play there. You know, like you don't want to be the one to end up in front of the House and American Activities Committee, so to speak. You know, like, you know, that, that was kind of what you were looking at in a certain, in a certain respect. And uh, that led us, to, led us to this sort of, you know, papering over the, the realities of going to war in Iraq, you know. Um, but to me, for me, honestly, the, the, the Iraq war in a spiritual sense starts in the Persian Gulf War, right? Like, if you really want to, we, we have a tendency to sort of, like uh, compartmentalize it a little too much, but our ire toward Iraq begins on August 2nd, 1990, right? They invade Kuwait. And from that point forward, even after the surrender of Safwan Hill, right? From that, even after that, we, we made a very bellicose attitude toward, toward Iraq. You know, we, we maintained two no-fly zones over the northern and southern part of the country. Now, part of that was because Saddam was acting like a madman and, and killing Kurds, et cetera. But we maintained sanctions over them that were basically saying, look, to the point where it was like, look, you can, we'll give you food if you give us oil. Like we were, you know, we were, we were making this sort of really nasty deal. And, it, and it, with dictatorships like that, the person who ends up getting punished for that is the lowest common denominator. It's the bottom of the rump. It's the average Iraqi citizen who felt the caloric loss of all that food that we weren't giving them or the, the, the result of all the sanctions in other ways. You know, the bad party was, you know, living fat and happy, quite frankly. So there was counterproductive, you know. We kept waiting for some kind of revolution, but that wasn't going to occur. And so uh, along the timeline, I ired in our impatience, this build, builds up until Bush comes along in 03 and says, let's go for, well, 02 really, and says, let's go for it, you know. And so I, I don't really, I, I'm, 9-11 gives us the casus belly, which is loose, you know, a loose, a loose justification for war. But it doesn't really. It to me, it's just a. I don't. I don't even like to compare it, to connect the two sometimes because they have two very different uh, motivations and formations. They just happen to be tethered by the lies they were told about it. Um, you know, I know we're going to get into the book as well, but would you mark 9/11 as the beginning of the forever war? Or do you think it was starting prior to that? I think it started prior to that. I. I 9-11 is just, it's, a, it's, it's sort of a, a huge marker and that sends us into a more of a kinetic conflict than, a, than not. But 
like, look, I mean, we, we've been mixed up in the Middle East since the, 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 the fall of the Shah, right? Since 79, the Islamic Revolution. From that point forward, it's been either Lebanon, it's been, uh, you know, Kuwait and Iraq, it's been, you know, uh, dealings with Israel and uh, Hezbollah and, and uh, you know, it's, Libya. It's, it really starts then, 79 forward. Mm-hmm. I mean, look, when I was in Paris Island going to boot camp, we fired rockets at Afghanistan. President Clinton did a did a Tomahawk cruise missile strike on Afghanistan while I was in Paris Island, and that's two to three years. That's three years before nine eleven. You know, my, that's true. Now that you mention it, you're right. It's just always been a part of our life since we were kids. I mean, we're right. all generally the same age. I'm probably a couple years older than you, but yeah. I mean, Clinton had his share. He just didn't hear about it as much. Mm-hmm. Yeah interesting stuff well guys i think there's a good place to take a break and then i really want to get into the book hey we have a quick favor to ask we want to get the word out and the way to help is for you to subscribe to us on either apple or spotify and it would be really huge if you give us a rating and a review much love all right guys we are back um with jared alexander author of volunteers growing up in the forever war we are very happy to have them on it's been a great conversation so far um one one question i wanted to one thing i want to touch on real quick is the term the forever war now i love that you've incorporated that into the title of your book because we all know what it is but do you feel like that that term has become kind of common vernacular like if you if you say the forever war we all know what what we're talking about here I mean, or is that is that a term? Is that a term that you and your friends have come up with? Is that a term that you came up with? Because I've heard George mention it. I've kind of heard it before, but it's such an applicable term to what you're talking about here. I felt like it was just coming into like the zeitgeist maybe within the past like two to three years. Um, I, I before that, I mean, I may have heard it, but it would have been very inside baseball, you know. Or you would end up referring to a Joe Haldeman novel, right? I mean, it's, it's, it was one of those two things. And so, but yeah, I think it's slowly kind of coming into vogue as a sort of accepted term for it. I don't know if it's going to be the official term for it. By no means do I think that. But, and I don't think that our political systems will allow that, that term to be used sort of that openly because, well, I mean, within their own sort, within, within the government's way of naming things, because it's, it's a, puts a stain on their, on their, on their record effectively, but, and it's still ongoing. And right now there's a lot of uh, overtures, I think that suggests that we're sort of at a, in, in a, in a, you know, a marker of peace or a place of peace, which is nonsense because we still have troops deployed to Syria. You know, we're still yeah. fighting ISIS. We're still dropping bombs over there to this day. So, yeah. you know, we could, we could say all day that the troops were out of Afghanistan, but we're still fighting over there in some capacity. I mean, you know, it's, um, but it's also, it's what, what's refreshing I think to us is that, it's a Marine telling this, saying this, and it's not a pundit. It's not someone, you know, with a, with a scholarly, you know, not someone from a, from a big university necessarily. It's someone, it's a Marine that's telling us about this, which I think is an important aspect to, to, for this kind of commentary. And, you know, you're saying it's still going on and we all know it's still going on. So where would you place the withdrawal of troops out of Afghanistan in the bigger picture of this forever war? Is it a big mark of, of, of things starting to end, but we're still, our, our presence is still there. 
as you just mentioned? I think it's a reduction on the logistics end of things. Certainly, is that. I mean, we, we, you know, the Taliban are now running Afghanistan, so it's back to what was effectively a status quo. You know, if we go back far enough. Um, but no, I, I think so. I think that it is a diminishing of, the, of our of our presence there. But I don't think it's a realignment of our geopolitical goals to the region. You know, I think it was we have spent enough time and money, and we're not seeing a result. And look, Biden got enough heat for you know this clumsy withdrawal and to a certain extent to a certain extent he should be you know he should receive that but at the same time like he was the only one who had the guts to actually do it you know no we went through the four sitting presidents you know i was going to say the same thing that um you know i'm i'm a pretty big critic of biden for many things but i gotta say you know say what you want about the guy he actually did what he said he was going to do he mm-hmm. he withdrew the troops and you know, like you said it was maybe it wasn't like how is it supposed to end what what is right. a what does a good <laughs> end look like i mean i don't know what people were expecting i don't know what the expectations were but i have to give the man credit for actually going through it and it it wasn't just lip service it happened pretty quick i mean what was he what is he maybe a year into his presidency and that's yeah. You know, if he does nothing else, history will remember him for being the president that made that pretty intense decision that, like you said, no one else, nobody else did. In military circles, is that is it is it considered a good thing in your literary and military circles that you might be running in? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Nobody had any. Nobody had any. I mean, there was a little bit of ire over there. Well, not, I shouldn't say a little bit. There was a considerable amount of yeah. ire over the uh, special immigrant v- visa process that was clumsy. It's still ongoing and somewhat clumsy. You know, evacuation of you know people who helped us all these years. You know, they, they deserve to come with us. You know, it's mm. you know it's, they they deserve to be treated as well as we treat our own soldiers. And um, I think there was a lot of flaws in that system. But you know, to your point, George, like. My, my issue with the, with the criticism of it is, you know, I, we can be upset at Biden over the, the mismanagement of the evacuation. And, but there's never, there, I, I can't think of a time in history where there's been a, an evacuation, with the exception of maybe Dunkirk and Gallipoli, where it went well, right? Also, that war was phoned in for about 18 of 20 years, right? You could, you can't, we can't suddenly expect that the end of the war was going to somehow turn into this sterling example of our abilities to to conduct ourselves in a foreign country right that wasn't going to be the case it was going to go exactly the way the war went anyway which it did and so it always made me laugh when people were getting when when pundits especially were on tv you know raising their fist in the air over this sort of ham-fisted withdrawal i'm like well what did you expect you didn't ask for anything different you've been even you know kiting this war in the whole time why would you suddenly expect it to be any better yeah no it's like you can call it the forever war the great golden goose i mean it's just even adrian said adrian bonnenberger when he was on he was saying it's like these people on the ground were getting a different directive every every shift change every four years there was no stream there was no streamlined no through line no direct no overreaching directive except just to be there Mm -hmm. i mean yeah yeah, and he saw it in a very, very personal way. I mean, he was a company yeah. commander. I mean, he, he, he got to see those directives at play at the last thousand yards of the policy. And, and you know, yeah, it was just, yeah, like I said, it was just sort of like, just just don't yell too loud. You know, that was the sort of, that was the, the sort of attitude towards, toward the generals. Just 
yes, we understand you have issues. Just go over there and don't talk too much, <laughs> you know, or uh, alternatively, it could have been, it was very much also a general who was probably going, I'm not going to talk too much. Cause why, you know, <laughs> like there's nothing I can't, I don't have ability to influence. I have no ability to flex here. So I'm just going to do what I can and then go on about my career. Yeah. Well, so tell us about the book, man. I mean, what was the impetus? What, what was the, where did the inspiration come from? This is fascinating stuff. Thanks, man. Uh, you know, I it started in, um, I wrote like a really, really terrible book around 20, 2007. Like when I got out of the Marine Corps, I was like, let me, let me see if I could write like a, if I die in a combat zone, that was sort of the model that I was using. Uh, and it was terrible. I tried to sell it and it didn't sell. And I'm very grateful for that because it was a hot mess. And then I just kind of put it away, you know, I, I, I shoved it in a drawer effectively. And then I was going to undergrad and I was kind of learning, learning how to write fiction. And, uh, you know, I spent a lot of time just sort of exploring that. And, and then I came back around to it in 2015 and you know, I had read, I had a few friends who were like, you should really write nonfiction about the war. And I, I had done a little bit of that, but I wasn't really that moved by it. I was, I always struggled with talking about myself in that way to a certain extent, or at least that, that, that was a place I'd gotten to. Well, then I, I one after, you know, the summer of 15, I reread um, Hell's Angels by Hunter Thompson. And I was blown away by the, the, the section, uh, the statutory rape of Bass Lake, which is that opening oh, yeah. like 20, 30,000 word, like fast paced, hot run out to Bass Lake and this sort of like media narrative that sort of follows it, right? And I, I love that. I thought it was really cool that, especially those opening paragraphs. And oh, so yeah. I sat down and I was like, okay, look, let me, let me write a, a, a section, a, a piece of work just about a, a firefight that I was in. But let's, let's look at it at the lens of like me as an observer in that. But obviously I was a participant in it, but I was a combat correspondent as well. So that gave me a certain like, a certain removal like i had a, a a little bit of like standoffishness i could watch it take place while i was participating in it you know very similar to what joker's doing in rafter man and, and full metal jacket right so it's not too dissimilar to that and i had a lot of agency as a sergeant as well and so i decided but let, me, let me approach it with that same octane you know that that hunter puts into that because i saw that i mean i saw this kind of like you know, beast of beast of machinery roaring across the desert highways and getting into fights. And that was a big part of the, the attitude, you know, uh, 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 and then of course that unravels as, as the tour goes on, but that was very early. I was, I think I'd been in Iraq maybe three weeks when that firefight occurred. And so there was a lot of like, kind of let's go get this and let's do this and get, let's get crazy. It also gave me the freedom like that, looking at it through hunters, sort of that hunter-esque lens gave me a freedom to write about it in a lot, in a bit, bit of a different way. And so my initial intention was I wrote 10,000 words uh, that's been truncated to probably about, maybe about four or five. It's in the, it's, it's right after the prologue of the book is that section. And it's, it's what remained of it. And, but I had initially thought like, maybe I'll write a book about the Marine Corps, just like not only my experiences, but about the culture, very ethnographic and, uh, you know, bring in a lot of my experiences. But then what happened is, as, as I wrote about it, I began to realize that I needed to talk about my childhood because that formed how I ended up there. So I was weaving in both a repertorial style and then also a sort of a memoristic. And then it, as it kind of grew along, the repertorial style began to fall off more and more and more. And I ended up with this sort of, well, look, you know, I grew up around this stuff and I ended up in the war, like 
I found this kind of goofy way of merging the two together and a lot Beautiful. of the yeah. odds of stuff kind Absolutely. of fell away. Love it. That's, that's fascinating, man. That's a fascinating and, and wonderful explanation in the sense that, like you say, you're, you're, you found the thing that clicked your personal experience with your, with your upbringing. And, and that's the moment that's, that's, what's going to make people appreciate this book is when you can see that in that moment, in that high octane, as you said, Hunter S style writing, even though it's probably, it's just probably distinctly your own style, you can capture that, that, you know, you're talking about a big military gear and you're, you're looking at the, at these things that are made by, by humans that they're and it's crazy uh, just being in that situation is something that nobody else can really understand or experience and then applying that to 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 a broader scope i, I salute you man it's a really cool angle and i'm looking forward to reading it i'll tell you that for nice. sure what is the pro what is it like to um write a book publish a book promote a book and all the other uh surrounding activities to the final product in the year 2021 you know it seems i i'm guilty of this too most of the books that i consume are audiobooks now whether it's nonfiction, whether it's uh fiction historical um books um what is it you know we grew up in a world where writing a book meant something like your book was in the you know new york times top 20 was a huge uh, achievement what is it like now in the digital mobile world of 2021 i think a lot of those markers are the same even now um but i think that it's the audience is atomized and then it's been quartered off right so like you know one of the one of the struggles that i had in the in the production side of it was i wanted to i, I didn't want to turn around and write for the military because they know all this already like like, I don't want to write a book for them. I mean, I, I they, you know, it, it's, you know, if they read it and they, and they get something out of it and they connect with it, that's perfect. But what I really wanted to connect to was somebody who has no understanding of that world. Um, that's really tough to do now. I think if I were to, if this book were to say come out in, a, in an analogous form, maybe in the 70s, I think I would have had an easier time of finding an audience. Now that said, I, I, I it's still very new. The book is, you know, two weeks old. So it has time yet, but I, uh, I, I do wonder what the re reception would be. Also, this, it's a saturated market. You know, you guys mentioned Adrian, me, you know, Adrian and I, you know, we, we just put out a book very, very late in the, in the sort of pantheon. He had done some stuff prior to that as well, but, you know, it's an old subject. I mean, a lot of the guys who are writing now, they started producing works. I mean, gosh, I think Gallagher's book came out in, 2010 i think his first book matt gallagher's first book and he's one of the first ones you know and then there's a guy named john crawford who wrote a book wrote a memoir of the iraq war when i was still in the marine corps you know he it came out around the same time i was as i was getting out where i came out paperback which means it already been out a year so it's an old subject and it's you know it's a if it's the forever war it's the you know, a forever list of books on the subject, you know? So I think I'm, I'm you know, and to a certain respect, now I knew going into it that I was going to run into that. And I think that, you know, that's, that's something that I'm sort of struggling with now, even, even to a certain degree. But I think that it's one, one of the nice things though, is that the digital aspect of this, like, you know, 
like Hunter, for example, he had to go do a book tour, you know, and he flunked it for Hell's Angels. Like he, he you know, he phoned it in from what I, what I understand. Like it, it was a struggle for him. And that's because of Hunter, but it's, it's, a, it's also an arduous task. Well, here we get to do this all digital now. Like I know a lot of folks during the hot part of the pandemic were a little bit bent out of shape over the fact that they couldn't, I mean, they accepted it and understood it, but they didn't get the book tour. You know, so their book came out in a really kind of a, a terrible time. Now I kind of get a little bit of both. You know, I get a lot of, I get a, a lot more reach with using Zoom and the digital digital aspect of it. So like, I mean, I've done a book tour effectively from my living room, you know, and I've reached out probably to, I don't know if it would be more or less, I can't gauge that, but I've had the opportunity to reach out to a lot of people that it may have been a, a bit more of a struggle or a logistics hurdle. Um, you know, and I, you know, I did the audio book, I recorded that. So all those are out there. But one of my thing, my, my fear is that it's, 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 the, it's an old subject and it'll get overlooked on that premise. Um, but I think, I think that you have the advantage of your age. You're at the very end of Generation X and you're right on the cusp of millennial. And that's a voice, that's a time, and that's a perspective that I think is needed. And, and you know, I hammer it on this show all the time that we need more Gen X voices to, to tell these stories. And, you know, you're right in that strike zone, man. So I think that, you know, when people catch on that it's a, it's so, it's a contemporary of theirs and people that would be interested in the subject are, are getting the information from someone that's their peer and a contemporary of theirs, I think is a, is a, is a, an advantage to the mm -hmm. subject matter for you, for yourself, if I may say. Yeah. I, uh, I've always sort of leaned to the Gen X side of the aisle. I think that my upbringing is more that than the millennial. And that's not a drag on either side, really. No, but, yeah. uh, no you strike yeah. me as such as well. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think we all grew up with the same kind of films. hundred <laughs> yeah. percent, man. Yeah, <laughs> How many times have I seen Clerks, right? Like, let's... Yeah. <laughs> we all have an appreciation for the 90s. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, uh, just by virtue of uh, being you know, uh, a man who was in the military, I mean, it's gotta be tough to like turn away from like some geopolitical, uh, activity in the world. Do you have any thoughts on kind of what's going on in, I guess, Eastern Europe, Poland, Ukraine, Russia, it seems like there's a lot of, uh, activity over there that isn't quite, uh, hot yet, but are we, as just the world uh, resonance, is it time to really worry about these guys really uh, having a, a hot conflict or is this just kind of maneuvering, posturing and uh, tit for tat for lack of a better word? That's a good question. I don't, I don't, I'm not, I, I can't even begin to suggest I'm an expert in it, but from what I understand of it, I mean, let me look, we, I mean, Putin invaded, you know, uh, Crimea, what in fourteen? I mean, the the, the fighting in U the Ukraine has continued since then. Um, I mean, Sir Adrian, we, we could probably talk about that even it, it, in a larger sense, um, having been over there. But um, no, my 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 thinking is more like what's going to happen in the East, you know, China, the Belt and Road Initiative, and, and that sort of thing. I don't I don't have a a, a, a specific perspective on it, but I, I am more just the nature of that and the, 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 the sort of 
the real the the, the multi the multi alignment of the, the we have multiple superpowers forming you know we are no longer the the sort of the, the sort of single the single the single the biggest dog on the planet anymore um you know russia's trying to exert itself but it's going to do it in, in russia's own very clumsy way um China, however, is really exerting itself, and I think that, but it's economic exertion, which is probably more painful. It's less deadly, but it's it's, you know, at least in a wartime sense. But it, it's it's certainly more more uh, painful. Um, that to that end, though, I, I have I have some optimism now because one of the things about conventional conflicts, especially against two uh, near peer adversaries, is that it is incredibly expensive. It is exceedingly costly. So if you have the United States military up against the Chinese military, it is going to be incredibly violent, incredibly short, high cost in lives, and no economic benefit to either side, right? They're going to simply lose asset. And I don't know that either side, I, I, I don't think that either side is all terribly that interested in fighting those battles. So there might be some like, you know, a hunt for Red October kind of stuff, where it's sort of like, you know, sparking on the edges of warfare. But it's not. I don't. I. I think that there would be a pullback before it got to that point, just because the effects of it would be so deleterious to both sides. And it's just interesting as as the world is more connected via the internet, and even, you know, information being as fast as it is, it's all a different race now. It's all a different fight than it once was there is no run hunt for red october days right you know, it's the it's it's just different you know it's a, it's a, it's it, we'll never be able to grasp it will we <laughs> really? well i think you point to a good a, a good a, a, a really salient point though or salient aspect of it is that the digital space is a, is a bigger battlefield than the physical space right like i mean russia's proved that with its manipulation of our elections right if you can influence the population to vote a certain way to your benefit yeah and you don't need to fight wars anymore you know and like the, you and yeah but that and the and the and cryptocurrency for example and 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 everything that's changing i mean all of the old ways i, I mean george in passing said to made some made a very interesting comment to me a, a few weeks ago that's been sticking with me that all a lot of these folks that have been in power no, they're in the last minute of their power because there's just these other forces coming to light. News doesn't matter anymore. CNN, MSNBC, Fox, and this shit doesn't matter anymore. People are listening to individuals, to people that have experience. The even though we had a podcast to two weeks ago that's airing, it comes out tonight of this recording about cryptocurrency, and I'm convinced that you know if a whole country can be on bitcoin because inflation destroyed their money what's to stop that from happening here so you're so the game is changing the the whole all of it is changing at a rapid pace mm -hmm. i agree i think the internet and i think the digital space is sort of like i've heard it referred to as the modern uh, printing press right i mean it's it's yeah it's you know, the printing press was massive caused a massive international geopolitical shift is people had access to information the ways they didn't before, you know, mm -hmm. uh, and that is now we're seeing that again in the digital in the digital space. You yeah, know? think uh, about it. It's the printing press, and then uh, what was the other one? Uh, Morse code, <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah. But that was, the, that was yeah. the first. Uh, the telegraph was the really first. Uh, the beginning of it all. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, and so we're seeing this like up upheaval that's based around those things. 
You know what the very first telegraph t- transmission ever was? Was the first? I think I know this. I don't remember though. What hath God wrought? <laughs> that was that was honestly the very first uh, telegraphic transmission. I think it was Samuel Morse to uh, to somebody, but uh, yeah, that's the very first. Um, the very first. I hope that was the first email. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's. But you know. I'm always thinking to myself, you know, to the point you're making about, you know, like violent, uh, you know, battlefield, traditional warfare. I feel like the world is at war, right? When I think of like China's like housing markets collapsing and the debt that is going to ripple their whole economy. I mean, that, how do, how do you not think that there's other actors involved tipping business direct decisions mm-hmm. in a certain way now if they're you know if they're if they're having problems with their money and they don't have the ability to lend and it's just a distraction to them right it's a, it's it's a real problem to them and their people but now i have to go put a fire out over there oh it, it's like the dutch boy in the dike it's like how much time and physical right. space can you occupy to to sort out all these problems but then you'll see you know, wasn't it not too long ago that I think it was like Facebook, like went offline for like two days. I mean, that's, I mean, that kind of stuff just doesn't happen, right? There is something going on there. And I have a buddy who um, was called in, he does a lot of uh, tech security, I guess, as a novice way of explaining it. But a big apartment complex in the Bronx got hacked by some organization and now they have access to all of the financial records, all the personal records. And all these people that run that uh, housing unit, I'm sure they don't want that information out in the public. Mm-hmm. So um, they're dealing with that. So all these little, I, I don't think they're little, but all these beneath the surface type activities is, isn't it just, it's conflict, right? There's something going on but just not in the traditional sense that we're used to like in a full metal jacket guys going out on a mission with machine guns. And, you know, it's just a different way that things are being done now, but it's, uh, it's really uh, unnerving, I guess, you know, I wish I want to end this on a positive note. You know, when you say, you know, how do we feel better about ourselves? You know, right. I know it is scary. I, I, I but I, I really do have, while I do think that our, our, our sometimes our, our institutional systems that, that handle these things on the defense side can be a little slow, I do take I do have some optimism in that. The, I do I do find some solace in the fact that the people who are doing this stuff, they are trying to do this stuff. They are trying to prevent these things, and on a long enough timeline, these things do get resolved. You know, if, there's going to be some growing pains and learning curves to this, but like like look, I mean, I think about like. I think about like U.S. air pilots and over the Pacific in World War II. You know, like we're getting shot down left and right up front, right? Because the Japanese Zero was a better plane, and we started making better planes, and then they started getting shot down left and right. You know what I mean? Like, and I know that's kind of a clumsy analogy, and, and, and it sort of like points back to the to the change you're, you're in. It points back to the to the origin of the change you're suggesting, but like we evolve, I think, and I do have a lot of faith in that. I think that, I think that the security systems and, and digital security right now is a massive field and it's growing. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's, that's, I get a, I, I try to like find little bits and bits of optimism over the, within that sort of thing. And I know that's, 
I'm always, I'm always, always afraid of being Pollyanna, you know, like where I'm like, Oh no, it's fine. We're going to be fine. These things exist. But I do think that there are folks out there that are really trying to like mitigate the effects of these things. Now, you know, one of the things I think that we individuals should really be focusing on is like media awareness and like having some sort of like critical thinking skills when it comes to understanding what we're reading. Like, you know, a, 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 a tweet, a series of tweets that are deleterious on, on, on Twitter are not like gold standard currency as far as information goes. Same for misinformation on Facebook and like knowing how to respond to those things and going, look, I don't need to share this. I don't like this tweet, for example. I'm not going to repeat this tweet because that just amplifies the message. And so if I'm a bad actor and I'm somebody who can game that, you know, or, if, or, or rather on the other end, if, if we're somebody who recognizes that we can gain our, our emotional need for dopamine can be gamed, and we can be conscious of that, we can kind of neuter it before it even starts. And I, 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 that's one thing I do wish there was a little bit more education on is how to have an emotional relationship to the information you're receiving and respond accordingly. So to avoid it becoming a bigger problem than it is. Yeah, I really appreciate your time, uh, Jared. Uh, volunteers growing up in the forever war, uh, please go take a look at it. Uh, Jared, one last thing. Can you just tell us, I know that you're an advocate for uh, uh, private bookstores. Can you just, you know, it's getting back to like purchasing a book in 2021. Mm. Is there still opportunity to go out into those boutiques um, spaces and like go and touch a book and you know, look around. And I, I mean, I'm an old guy now, like you guys, but I, I used to love going into the bookstore and just like spending some time there. Like I used to go into a record store mm -hmm. and uh, just spend some time and look around and kind of like get lost in it. Is that, is there still opportunities out there to do that? Would you say? I think so. Absolutely. I think that I actually think that there's been a, a slight rise in independent bookstores. You've seen a growth of them. I mean, I can speak for Atlanta. There's acapella books down there. It's really great. And there's uh, Eagle Eye and there's a few others down there that are really good. Obviously, I mean, New York City is, is just, I got, I've got three within, actually, I'm sorry, four within wow. walking distance of me, you know, like, and they're all independent, you know, and then of course I have your Barnes and Noble a little further down, you know, um, you know, so, yeah, but it also like, if somebody wants to avoid Amazon, I mean, there's there's a, there's a little site called bookshop.org and it's, it works the same way, but bookshop. it just, it calls, it calls from independent stores when you're buying something. Now you're not going to get the, you're not going to get the 24 hour shipping on it or something like that, but the money's going to a better, <laughs> a better source, a better kind of, it's going to a, 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 somebody who probably needs it more than Jeff Bezos does. Right. Um, you know, so that's another good way if you want to maintain it, if you want to do it in a digital, digital way. What's the best way to, to get your book? We, uh, we, subscribe, uh, we can find it on Amazon. We can find it. It's yeah. out. Yeah. yeah awesome. Get it on Amazon, bookshop.org. I mean, Barnes Noble's got it. Uh, Fantastic. If Walmart, if that suits you. <laughs> I think they got it. Target, I think, has it. Yeah. yeah no, man. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll put that out. when we, we this, this episode will come out in about a week and a half. And, uh, we'll, right after we'll Thanksgiving. All that probably, information. Right, yeah. Probably right after Thanksgiving. And then uh, we'll put all that, all that information. It really has been a, a great pleasure speaking with you. Um, you know, I mean, it, we, we, we have a, we've had a handful of authors, you know, over our two seasons here. And, um, you know, it's just, it's just awesome to, to speak with someone that has boots on the ground experience as a Marine. And thank you for your service. That first Thanks. and foremost, that's, that's, you know, absolutely incredible. And for you to, uh, to find it in you to find this story, to tell your story and, and write, and, and write this novel, I congratulate you and uh, we congratulate you, man. 
Thanks so much. I appreciate that. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Jared. Have a great Thanksgiving. I uh, hope, uh, you know, things continue uh, with the book. We'll certainly uh, share all the links to it when this episode comes out. So um, for Pete and for Roger, Jared, thank you. And uh, as far as $5 buzz is concerned, uh, feel free to give us a like, a follow, a, uh, you know, click the bell on YouTube. Yeah, all that internet warm and fuzzy <laughs> stuff so we can uh, strengthen our signal for uh, good folks doing real work like uh, Jared. So thank you. And-